starting a new series today called Love Your Neighbor, and we're going to focus on this all month. We're going to be talking about how you can tangibly show the love of Christ to people around you. Now, if someone were to ask you what's the most important thing that you could do with your life, would you know how to answer that? I think a lot of you would, and since this is church, you would probably say, well, um, God, right? God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, those were the Sunday school answers. That's what, whenever everybody would just sit there and look at the teacher and not know the answer, we'd say one of those, and usually it was right. So this being church and Sunday morning, you might say, well, probably the best thing I can do is to get to love God, get to know God, and you would be right. But if someone were to come up to you and they ask, what's the second greatest thing that you could do with your life? Would you know how to answer that? Most people don't. In Matthew chapter 22, a religious teacher comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? He's saying, if I only get one thing out of this Bible here, what should I get out of this Bible? And Jesus tells him. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So the number one thing that we're supposed to do is to spend our lives getting to know God. Every day we should draw a little bit closer to God, get to know him just a little bit better. And then the second most important thing Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, I can summarize the entire Bible for you in two statements. Love God and second... Love your neighbor as yourself. The key to this is as yourself. Because we don't do that. We don't love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But Jesus says that's the second most important thing you can do with your life. And it's so important. He doesn't just say this once. He says love your neighbor as yourselves ten times in the New Testament. Anytime God tells you something ten times, it's like, hello, you need to get this one. We need to learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. So to make sure we don't forget this, Jesus tells a story. And it's probably the most famous story in the New Testament. It says, one day, this is in Luke chapter 10, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. So this is a debate question. He's trying to trick Jesus. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a pretty good question. He's saying, how do I know if I'm going to go to heaven? Had some Mormons at my door one time, and I said, I said, is it possible for you to know that you're going to heaven? They said, you can't know. And I said, well, here's what the scripture says. I've written these, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I said, scripture says you can know. You say you can't know. I'm, I'm going to go with scripture. So he's saying, how do I know if I'm going to heaven? And Jesus, I love how Jesus does this. He says, well... What does the law of Moses say? See, all these people had it memorized. They had most of the Old Testament memorized. Probably all of the first five books of the Old Testament, they had memorized. So he said, what's the law of Moses? That's the first five books of the Old Testament. He said, what does it say? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, this is so important that I want you to write this. You got your listening guide? I want you to write as yourself somewhere on that listening guide. If you don't get anything else today, you need to learn to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the radical part. Jesus didn't say, well, just be kind to people. Just go out somewhere and and pat them on the back, say hello, shake their hand. Just be nice. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So look how Jesus responds when this guy says that. He goes, right. Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? That sounds like such an intelligent question. But why is the guy asking it? He's looking for a loophole. He's saying, 
I don't want to love people unnecessarily, so could you define this for me? Are you talking like Facebook friends? Is that what you're talking about, Facebook neighbors? Or, or do you mean neighbor neighbors, really, that they're physically in my neighborhood? You're talking about them? You're talking about the people at work? Um, are you talking the whole world? Please define this, because I don't want to waste my love unnecessarily, and neither do you. And so he's asking this whole question, and uh, oh, I forgot to tell you all this. This is just an aside. We won the golden toilet at preteen camp. The boys did for the, for the nicest cabin. <clears throat> James had to spend a couple hours, two and a half hours one day cleaning and kicking boys out and actually transferring shoes into another cabin. But uh, and he can tell you all those stories. But we, we won the coveted golden toilet trophy. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just saw it. Um, so Jesus answers him. He asks this question. He's trying to get out of this. Who, who should I love? Jesus tells him this story of the Good Samaritan. And he says there's three guys in the story. Now, in this story, the three guys don't represent three different people. The three guys represent three different attitudes that you might have. Um, and, and you can have all three attitudes in one day. So it's not like you say, well, I'm, I'm the priest or I'm the Levite or I'm the Samaritan. No, you could be the priest in the morning. You could be the Levite in the afternoon and you could be the good Samar- Samaritan uh, before bedtime. You can have any of these three attitudes and you can choose to move in and out of those attitudes at any given moment. So let's figure out what they are. Three attitudes toward your neighbor. Two of them you don't need to have. One of them Jesus said you need to have. First one is keep my distance. The priest had an attitude of avoidance. Now, we talk about this, and y'all laugh, so I know you do it. When you're coming down an aisle at Walmart, and sometimes you can see for miles at Walmart, sometimes they don't have things in the aisles, and you can see, and you see somebody that you have a problem with, what do you do? Run, yeah. You turn and and hide behind something, because there's a stack of something at Walmart you can hide behind at any time. That's the attitude this priest had. It's an attitude of avoidance. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, some translations, many of the translations say he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Can you put that picture up there, Mike? This is, this is what the road literally looks like from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem is up in the mountains. It's a, it's a very nice, uh, sometimes of the year it's very nice up there in the mountains. And you literally figuratively, not figuratively, literally have to walk down the mountain to go out into the plains to get to Jericho. So he's saying this man is, is walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, and I don't know if you've ever been places where you're kind of by yourself. <clears throat> I had some issues one day in Haiti and uh, had some stomach issues and, and uh, very nice, very nice toilet facilities. And uh, I spent a lot of time there. And, and so my stomach was killing me one day. And so I went and I laid down. Uh, and, and earlier in the day, I told Jane I was going to lay down. The kids wouldn't leave me alone. So I just got back in the bucket line and, and I'm throwing buckets and I'm like, ooh, got to go. And so I, I run. And so anyway, I lay down and um, I must have fallen asleep. Because when I got up, I come out, nothing but Haitians, as far as the eye can see on the top of this hill. And they're laughing at me, and they're speaking Creole, and I don't have them, they're like, and I said, they left me, and they're like, ah, oh, they thought that's so funny. As I'm walking down the hill, I mean, I'm, I've been to Haiti four times, and, and I'm, I don't feel threatened or anything, but as I'm walking down the hill, and I can't see another white person, I'm going, this is probably not the best situation for me right now. I'm walking down, and finally I come around a corner, and they had stopped. They got to this one point, and they're like, uh, 
Caleb, Caleb has my backpack, and he said, uh, Dad wouldn't have left his backpack. Maybe we should stop. And then about that time, Janie goes, uh, I don't see my husband. They thought that because I was sick, I may have walked on down the hill, but they got about halfway down. So when I come down and I see the people, I'm like, ooh, yay. I don't have to try to get from here. I could, I could say enough probably to ride a tap-tap and get back to uh, care for, but, but you have to be very careful. Can you imagine walking down this road by yourself, and you know this is a road where robbers hang out. Because I don't know if you've ever walked into a situation where you're just having a good time, and all of a sudden you're like, I should not be here. This is, this is the, the Jewish guy. And he's attacked, and he's beaten. And um, look what it says. By chance, I want you to circle those words. You have that on your listening guide. And we're going to come back to this in a minute. This is real important. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. This is the lifestyle of avoidance. He sees the guy hurt and walks on by. He ignores him, walks on the other side of the road. So his idea is, if I don't get too close to this person, I won't have to admit that I know they have problems so I don't have to get involved. This is what a lot of church people do. It's why churches have bad reputations. We don't want to get close to people because people are messy and I might have to get involved in their lives. So if I just avoid them, I never know and I can stand before God with a clean conscience. No, you can't. Um, back in April, we had a graduation party for Caleb. He graduated actually <clears throat> in December, and so in April we had this graduation party for him. And we invited church people, and we invited uh, the neighborhood, and we invited previous church people. And so we had this great turnout at our house. And there's four families that have been in our neighborhood longer than we have. And and we were talking and you know just having a good time, and we realized it's the first time in 18 years. These four families and my family had been in the one spot at one time. They had watched my children grow up, literally watched them grow up. They are my neighbor neighbors, and none of us, we had never gotten together at the same time, had a great time talking, enjoyed it, and we thought, how sad that in the United States, you can live next to somebody for 18 years, and you can avoid them, right? And, and you know, some of you do this, some of you have neighbors that you don't really want to see and you pull in and either if you don't have the garage door opener, you know, that you can go in and close it, what you'll do is you'll drive in and, and, and you see out of the corner of your eye somebody, but if you don't want to talk to them, what do you do? You run in the house. It's the attitude of avoidance. It's way too easy in the United States to avoid people. What struck me was the last night we were in Haiti, um, pastor friend of mine, Chris, he brought his church with us. We were riding around with Almondo, who was our trip leader. And we actually went out to his house. He goes, you guys want to see my house? We're like, yeah, we'd love to, because I'd seen it on Facebook, but hadn't been in it. He's building on this room. They're about to have a baby, he and his wife. And so we went out there. And what struck me was we're, we're driving along. We're on busy roads, all this stuff. All of a sudden, we turn on this dirt road, and you really kind of need a four-wheel drive to get to his house. We're going up all this stuff. Every person we pass from the main road, about a uh, half a mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile, every person knew Almondo. And it was funny because if they see two white dudes in the car, they, they look at us and then they look at Almondo. Oh, it's Almondo. Ah, they're with him. And like, Almondo, Almondo. Everybody knew Almondo. And I thought that's so different than in my hometown where you drive down the road and, and I see neighbors. I don't even know their names. Wave at them. Hey. Got a couple of kids. Ah, oh, nice baby. Right? You do the same thing. So the first one is keep my distance. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you keep your distance. Second attitude is the curious but uninvolved. 
Next, a Levite came there, and after he went over and looked at the man, he walked by on the other side of the road. By the way, a Levite is not a jeans salesman. Just checking. A Levite is a temple assistant. Now, they're actually, and, and when I read this, I started comparing different translations. There are five translations that, that translate it this way, that, you, that he actually, he's walking down the road. Instead of just staying on the side of the road, he actually walks over, looks at him, goes, hmm, walks back to the other side of the road and, and leaves the guy there. Um, and, and it just kind of seems crazy to me because the priest and the Levite were very religious and their religion made no impact on how or whether they were going to love their neighbors. See, religion, you can go to church every time the doors are open and not be a loving person. We all know people like that. Religion does not make you a loving person. Religion does not cause you to obey the second greatest commandment that Jesus gave, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. These guys are dressed in their righteous robes and they do nothing when they see somebody in pain. And this guy, I think, is actually worse than the priest because he came over and looked. Nice. Hope you get over that. I'll pray for you as I'm walking on my way. And some of you say, well, I would never do that. We do it all the time. How many of you have stopped when you came up on a wreck? We love to stare. We hate to stop. Right? You get mad at everybody else because they're slowing you down and, oh, there's a wreck and, you know, at least call 911, that type of thing. We love to see other people's pain. We love to talk about other people's pain. We love to gossip about people. We like to see other people that are in pain and talk about it. We read magazines about it. It makes the headlines in our newspapers, if you even read those, or online, and, and it makes our evening news. Other people's pain we talk about, talk about, talk about. But just talking about it doesn't do anything. You can still be apathetic towards someone even if you're talking about their pain. And if you take the A off of the word apathetic, what do you get? Pathetic. That describes the love of most Christ followers towards our neighbors. Pathetic. It, you can't say it with your mouth. You have to do something that demonstrates it. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So you can't have the keep your distance... Um, you can't have this second one, which is the curious but uninvolved. What you need to have is the third attitude, which is treat others the way I want to be treated. The people in your neighborhood, treat them like you want to be treated. The, the people at your school, treat them like you want to be treated. The people at your work, where you go and get fast food, wherever you go, treat people the way you want to be treated. You can't have attitude one and two and go with Jesus. But if you have this treat others as you would like to be treated, then you can draw near to your heavenly Father. Look what it, what it says here in Luke, uh, verse 33, Luke chapter 10. Then a, a, what is that word? Despise. Now, you can't say that nicely. Say that just despised. Say that. Good job. Chad, you're, you're always so helpful. Chad did it great. A despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Now, Jesus loved to turn the tables on people. He would take the most despised person and make them the hero of the story. A Samaritan was somebody that the Jews absolutely hated because they didn't have a pure bloodline. They're half Jewish and they're half Gentile, which is just unbelievable in, in the nation of Israel. This is, this is racial prejudice, racial bias 
bigotry right in the middle of Scripture. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And Jesus loved to take the dude that people thought was half human, not even a citizen, not worthy of any respect, and make him the hero. It would be like going about 50 or 60 years ago and, and in the Jim Crow era and making a black man the hero of the story in front of a bigoted a group of bigoted white people, and they'd go, how can you make him the hero? Jesus did this stuff all the time. He said, he's the only one, had nothing to do with the color of his skin, had nothing to do with uh, his, his background. It had everything to do with his heart. And Jesus made this guy the, the, uh, the hero of the story. He treats the man the way he wants to be treated. And if you're going to learn to love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to have to treat others the way that you want to be treated. To love my neighbor, I've got to do the same things that the Good Samaritan did. There's four things. Number one, I've got to see their needs. Love begins with looking. January 12, 2010, major thing happened in Haiti. You remember what it was? Earthquake. And a lot of us had been watching that on the news and thought we should do something. Didn't know what we should do, but we thought we should do something. And I'll never forget, my first year there was the most impactful on me. I mean, I, I, I love going back, and I've, I've told several people there, as long as the Lord allows me, I will keep coming back. I'll keep bringing people. But I'll never forget the first bus ride from the airport, once we got through the airport, which airport's nice now, by the way. I was warning everybody about the Well, they fixed the airport. It's great. Immigration, everything's great. But that first bus ride when we came out, and, and there's still some tent cities, and there's still some you know, tarps around here, and there's still some, some pieces of metal leaned up, uh, especially near the airport, but you don't see near as much. That first year, we saw tents everywhere, literally, you could put a tent except up on top of a concrete structure because they wouldn't stay in their homes the first year because they were afraid they would collapse. Um, Pastor Samson and his family, several months, they slept in their backyard in a tent because everybody in the country was afraid to go in their house because they thought the concrete was going to fall down and kill everybody. And we saw tents everywhere, even in the median of the road, because the median had, a, had about a foot high uh, concrete um, curb all the way around, and there were tents, and there were little children, I mean little kids, running in and out of the tents on these busy roads. And I thought, oh dear Lord, how can, they, how can they be living there? They live there because when it rains in Haiti, it rains and everything washes down to the sea. And at least if they were inside the median on top of the curb, they had a foot of water that wouldn't run into their tents. And we saw the need in that Thursday night, that first year, I said, you know, I've really been praying about whether we should have a long-term relationship with, with Haiti. Everybody on the team says, you need to stop praying. Because we need to do what, we need to come back here. God's told us that we're supposed to be here. You see the need. Love begins with the eyes. It begins with seeing. If you're not aware, you really do not care. The Good Samaritan saw the man's condition. His heart went out to him. And, and I don't remember if I put that on there. The words, when, you, when he saw. Yes, circle those words. When he saw. There are wounded people all around you. There are wounded people on your road today. There are people who are wounded physically. There are people who are wounded emotionally. Some people are wounded um, by their jobs, some relationally. Some have been wounded by their parents, been wounded by betrayal, uh, by grief. Wounded people are everywhere, but we don't see it because we're not sensitive. We've got to become sensitive to the people around us. And, and I don't think that you're bad people at all. I'm not even going to say that you have a bad heart. 
The reason you don't see the needs of people around you is because you're too busy. Busyness kills kindness. Busyness kills love. You run through your life at breakneck speed to get the next project done or whatever you're trying to do, and you'll skim. I always I think about this when we go hunting, when we go dove hunting especially, hunt around ponds sometimes because the birds eventually got to come in there. And there's these little bitty birds, I don't know what they are, but they come down and they just barely get a little drink of water. They'll swoop down at top speed and they'll get just a little bit of water. And I think, man, that's got to be disappointing. Why don't they slow down a little bit? And it's because a bunch of rednecks with guns are sitting there. But that's why they don't stop. But here's the thing, most of you are running at that speed and you're giving just a little bit of time to your family. You're giving just a little bit of time to your family, I'm willing to bet you're not giving any time to your neighbors, to people who have needs that you need to reach out to. Um, how, how many of you have gone to an airport and you've been late and you get to security and there's a long line at security? Okay. How many of you are nice when you get to a long line at security and you're thinking you're going to miss your plane and you really don't, you can't afford to miss your plane. How many of you are nice at that point? No one? No. I, I, see, if, if I'm there an hour, hour and a half early, I can be buddies with those TSA people. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you today. I can stop at Starbucks. If somebody's uh, over here and say, hey, you want me to take a picture for you? I'll be happy to. But if I'm running late... I don't have time for your business, right? We're too busy, so we miss people that are hurting. They're around us all the time. We miss it at church. And, and I want to ask you this. Can you write down the name? If I were to ask you to write down the name of a lost person, someone who is not a Christian, could you do that? Could you write down right now somebody that you come in contact with on a regular basis, at least on a weekly basis, that does not follow Christ? Could you write their name down? If you can't, we're in trouble as a church. We're in trouble as Christ followers because that's the great commission from Jesus himself. We're to go make disciples. How can you make disciples if you don't know lost people? But let's say that you could come up with that lost person's name. And I were to ask you, could you write down their biggest struggle? I'm willing to bet 99% of us in this room would say, well, I can come up with a name, but I don't know their biggest struggle. Then guess what? You do not love them as you love yourself because you know your biggest struggle and you don't know their biggest struggle. We've got to move from this um, I really don't have to get involved idea to I need to get to know people because you can't influence people from a distance. You can impress them from a distance, but you can only influence people when you're up close to them. You know your biggest struggle, we've got to learn other people's biggest struggles. So we've got to see their needs. Second, we've got to sympathize with their pain. Sensitivity starts with the eyes. Sympathy starts in the heart. When, when I saw some of our workers coming uh, to Haiti that first year and, and they had shoes that didn't fit, toes coming out, a lot of them they'll cut the ends of shoes off because their feet are too big for their shoes and they're just hanging out there. We all got together and we left all our shoes that first year. We, we set them up in, the, in our little tap tap and, and we, you know, each of us chose what, what guy we thought would, our shoes would fit and we left things with them. We left clothes. Um, I think it was the third year. Yeah, that was Rachel's first year. Um, we all left clothes every year and we're driving the bus back to uh, Cote Plage and Rachel goes, Dad, is that your shirt? Yep, that was my shirt. Left two years ago. 
Somebody's still wearing that. You have to see it, and then you have to sympathize. It's not enough just to see the needs. My emotions have to kick in. I have to feel what they feel. Verse 33, the second half of the verse says, When he saw him, his heart was filled with compassion. All right, guys, let me ask you a question. How can you be more compassionate with your children? How can you be more compassionate with your spouse? How can you be more compassionate with people around you? How do you not only see their needs, but you sympathize with them? Here it is, one word. This is a very important word, gentlemen. I need you to get this word today. You want to know what it is? Listen. And, and I hear dudes go, I'll listen to my wife all the time. No, you don't. See, I want to challenge you to do a very special kind of listening. I want you to do first date type listening. Because on your first date, you weren't checking your phone, you weren't checking the scores. If you were, you didn't have a second date, so that's how I know you didn't do that. On your first date, you're you're making eye contact, and she's saying something, and, and... you're looking at those lips and you go, man, those are nice. And she's talking and just the way she says her words, it's so special. And you, she says something, you're going, I wonder what she means by that. And you're just so enthralled with this beautiful creature across from you. You go home, you're worn out because you've put so much energy into listening and connecting. Ten years later, you're sitting at Chili's, you're eating your old timer with cheese. Your wife's talking and all you Uh-huh. You know I'm I'm telling, yeah, Charlie Brown. You know I'm telling the truth. That's not listening. That's passive. Listening is active. Hearing, because there's all kinds of noise going on all the time. Hearing is passive. Listening is active. And you've got to be active with your listening if you're going to connect with people around you. I read a poem this week, and I wanted to share this with you. When I ask you to listen to me and you start giving me advice, you have not done what I asked. When I ask you to listen to me and you begin to tell me why I shouldn't feel that way, you trample on my feelings. When I ask you to listen to me and you feel you have to say something or do something to solve my problem, you have failed me, strange as that seems. Just listen. Advice is cheap. 20 cents will get you both Dear Abby and Billy Graham in the same newspaper. I can do that all by myself. I'm not helpless. I may, dis- may be discouraged. I may be faltering, but I'm not helpless. So please just listen. Just hear me out. And if you want to talk, wait a minute for your turn, and I'll listen to you. And on the heels of that, I wanted to share with you a passage from a book called The View from a Hearse. It's by a man named Joe Bailey, and it's a book on grief. Listen to what he said. You can read it there. I put it on the screen too. I was sitting torn by grief when somebody came along and talked to me about God's dealings, of why it happened, of the hope beyond the grave. And he talked constantly and he said things I knew were true, but I was unmoved except a wish that he'd go away. And finally he did. Another came to me and sat down beside me. He didn't talk. He just asked me leading questions, but he just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened, and when I said something, he answered briefly and prayed simply and left. And I was moved and I was comforted and I hated to see that guy go. The difference was listening. You connect with other people when you listen to them. You got to see the need, you got to sympathize. Number three, you got to seize the moment. I don't wait, I don't procrastinate, I don't put it off, I don't say one of these days I'll get around to it, I do it at the moment. Every year, and, and I'm not trying to cast stones at anybody, but I'm, I'm just saying if you wait for perfect conditions to go to Haiti, 
you're going to die before those perfect conditions happen because there's never going to be perfect conditions for you to go to Haiti. Um, the first year, I got a phone call. I was at a wedding, and I get a phone call because somebody had read something on the Internet. You can believe everything that's on the Internet, right? Right? And, and this had happened, but it happened a long time before and nowhere near where we were going. I showed up at the airport the first year not knowing how many of our 12 people were going to show up. Because we had so many phone calls and people are saying, don't go, don't go, you're going to die if you go, don't you go, don't you go. And so I said, here's the deal. Caleb was 14 at the time. I said, I'm showing up at the airport tomorrow with my 14-year-old son. You're going to take him anyway? Yep. Why? Because God told me to. I felt like God called me to go. Caleb felt like God called him to go. I, I, I never mentioned it to him. Um, he came up to me one day and he said, I think God wants me to go. I said, you need to pray and be sure. And a few weeks later, he said, God, God called me today. I, I know it. God called me to go to Haiti. So we went. We ended up showing, all 12 people showed up that first year. And we had an incredible trip. But you see, the enemy didn't want us to go. And he'll throw all kinds of excuses up why you shouldn't go. And there are some of those are legitimate. I'm not saying that. But, but if you wait for perfect conditions, you will never step foot on Haitian soil. Or any other soil for that matter. Maybe you have a heart for somewhere else. If you wait for somebody else to do it, you may never go. And you'll stand before your Heavenly Father and you'll say, why didn't you do it? I just couldn't trust you, Lord. That's really going to be your answer. I want you to notice three things that this guy did. He took the initiative. He doesn't wait for the neighbor to come to him. And, and a lot of you would say, well, I would be happy to help my neighbors if they'll just come and tell me what's going on. That's not what this is about. Can you, can you see the good Samaritan walking by and say, hey, dude, if you'll come over here and tell me what's going on, I'll help you out. Where you live, I'll make arrangements for somebody to come and get you. Is that what he did? No. He went over and he did what he could at the moment. Real love is, I'm going to go to you. I'm not going to wait for you to come to me. You can't wait for your neighbor to say, I've got a financial problem. I've got a medical problem. I've got a relationship problem. It's going to be messy, but if you're going to be like the Good Samaritan, you're going to have to get involved. And you take the initiative. Now, love creates feelings. Don't get me wrong. Enormous feelings, but love is not a feeling. Otherwise, you couldn't command it. You're commanded throughout Scripture to love your neighbor. Ten times, love your neighbor as yourself. All the time, it says, love God, love people. You're commanded. You can't command something that's a feeling. It'd be like me saying to uh, my kids when they were little, be happy now. Right? And the kid's going, yes, sir. Right? You can't command a feeling. But love is not a feeling. That's why it's commanded throughout Scripture. Love is an action. Love is a decision that you can make. If you will be a big boy or a big girl, you can love anybody, whether they're lovable or not. So he takes the initiative. Second thing he does is he uses what he has. He bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Oil and wine? That sounds like salad dressing to me. The dude uses what he has. He's not a doctor. He's got lunch with him on his donkey. And so he pours wine on it. Wine's got some alcohol in it. That's a disinfectant. He has oil, and, and oil is soothing. So he's soothing the guy, and he's trying to disinfect his wounds. He doesn't have a whole lot of stuff with him. He's using what he has. And it says that he puts bandages on the wounds. What do he use for bandages? He's, he doesn't have a first aid kit with a bunch of band-aids in there. Oh, well, he probably used the guy's... Uh, the, the beat-up guy's clothes. No, because the beat-up guy was naked and beaten up. What do you think he did? I think he used his own clothes. He used what he had. 
He didn't, he didn't wait on somebody else to come and do that for him. Now, do you remember earlier when I had you circle um, the words, by chance, by chance a priest came along? Um, nothing happens by chance in your life. Everything is father-filtered. Now, I'm not saying that God causes everything that's happened to you. There's an enemy that's very real in this world. Some choices you've made are your own dumb decisions. You're suffering the consequences for your stupid choices. All right? Can't get around that. Sometimes you are suffering the consequences of other people's stupid choices. And then there's sometimes there's something called redemptive pain where God, your heavenly Father, allows you to go through, through something that you would never have chosen because He's going to give you a connection point with somebody else later down the road. Scripture says, we have been comforted by God in our affliction so that we might comfort others with the same comfort that God gave to us. Sometimes there is redemptive pain that's going on and your heavenly father allows you to do it. It was not by accident that the priest and the Levite walked by this guy. They chose to ignore him. It's not a circumstance by chance. Luck is a myth. Things happen with a purpose. Look at Proverbs three twenty-seven and 28. Never walk away. Man, this just blew me up this week. Never walk away from someone who deserves your help. Your hand is God's hand for that person. Never tell your neighbors to wait until tomorrow if you can help them today. You say, ouch. You do kindness now. When someone loses a loved one, you do something for them now. When someone gets fired, you call them now. When someone has a miscarriage, you call them now. When somebody gets sick, you call them now. You don't wait for the dust to settle. You do it now. You seize the moment. And then number four, you spend whatever it takes. There's always a cost to kindness. If you want to see the, the greatest example of this, you look at Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That's the greatest um, payment you can make is to give your life for someone else. But kindness requires a sacrifice in time, energy, reputation, money. Genuine love is sensitive, sympathetic, spontaneous, sacrificial. When we have people that are working back there with children, they are sacrificing their time in here. They're sacrificing something so that you can hear the message uninterrupted by your children. And not only that, they're loving on your kids and they're telling them about Christ. Some of these children heard about Christ over and over back here in our children's area. And then they go to camp and they hear about it again. And somebody has to take off work and go hang out with your children. There is always a cost to kindness. If it doesn't cost you anything, then I would question whether it's kind at all. You've got to make some type of sacrifice. This guy, the Samaritan, takes him to a motel. Now, he puts him on the donkey. So what is he riding once he puts the, the hurt guy on the donkey? Nothing. He's walking. The, the guy has no money, so who pays for his motel stay? The Samaritan. What does he have to gain from this? What can he possibly gain financially from helping this messed up dude? Big fat nothing. But I want you to realize what the scripture says. Kindness is an act of worship. You give a cool cup of water to a child in the name of God, he notices. Kindness is an act of worship. It honors God. The Bible says kindness makes me happy. The Bible says that kindness makes other people want to be kind to me. That's pretty cool. The Bible says that kindness makes other people want to be around me. And the Bible says that God has promised to repay kindness. And then, guys, if you 
Ever wondered whether you're a good looker or not? If you think you're ugly, you need to memorize this next verse because the Bible says one of the most unbelievable things. Kindness makes a man attractive. You want to look better, dudes? Learn to be kind. You think my wife thinks I'm more attractive when I'm kind or when I'm a punk? I can tell you that. When we first got married, you'd know if I'd been a punk because I'd come crawl into bed and she'd go, never say a word because my wife's much too nice to say a word. She'd turn that back to me and I didn't know until later she and her sister developed this little thing where it's called the burrito where they would stuff it in so that you can't even reach over and touch them. And you know why she did that? It's not because she was a jerk, it's because I was. She was simply reflecting back to me what I'd done to her. But when I'm kind, my wife thinks I'm good looking. I think I'm going to practice that today. Would you bow your heads for just a minute? We're going to pray together, and then uh, we'll dismiss in just a couple of minutes. But I'm going to ask you to pray. Father, thank you for your extravagant kindness to us. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place. God, we don't want to be uncaring, uh, unloving, apathetic people. We want to learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to take the same steps that the, the good Samaritan took to learn how to be kind this week. Now, I challenge you to pray this, and it's about what we just learned. If you want to pray this, you pray it in your heart. Dear God, help me to slow down and start seeing and sensing the needs of people around me. Give me a spiritual radar. Help me to be a better listener so I can sympathize with people. When interruptions come, help me to see them as opportunities to grow in love. Help me take risks and move against my fears in order to help others. Starting today, Lord, I want to grow in sensitivity. I want to grow in sympathy. I want to grow in spontaneity and in sacrifice for others. I want to be a real lover as defined in your word. And I want to show your kindness to others over the next 30 days. In your name I pray. Amen.